Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Hello, and welcome to Leading Edge Love Radio. This is your host, Sumati Sparks, the Open Relationship Coach. Have you ever wondered how well-suited you are for ethical non-monogamy? Well, you can find out by taking my quiz, and you can find the quiz right on the homepage of my website at sumatisparks.com. That's S as in Sam, U, M as in Mary, A, T as in Tom, I, Sparks as in Sparks Are Flying, And when you request the quiz, you'll be automatically added to my mailing list, and you'll be the first to learn about my virtual events and to receive occasional helpful tidbits of advice and information to add more love, passion, and joy into your life. So today, I'm really excited to have as my guest Indigo Dawn. Indigo Dawn goes by the pronouns they, them, or L. And Indigo is a transformational coach, educator, and touch therapist who lives and works for a more just, sustainable, abundant world. They are the program director for Center for a New Culture, the founder of the Consent Program for Interfusion Festival, and have organized hundreds of events. As a personal coach, they help dissatisfied changemakers and leaders find joyous inspiration to create the relationships, the life, and the world they most yearn for. Welcome to the show, Indigo. Hi, I'm glad to be here. So glad to have you. So I met you um, in February of 2020 at a when we were still having mm-hmm. high touch workshops <laughs> at the Center for a New Culture, mm-hmm. and we were hearing about this strange virus in China, and we were all washing our hands for 20 seconds, but we didn't know what was on the horizon. So what what a changed world it's been since we first met. Um, but it was really lovely meeting you, and it's been great to stay connected on the interweb and um, I wanted to find out a little bit more about your story like how did you end up at the Center for a New Culture and tell our listeners what the Center for a New Culture is and then um, how you ended up there and how you ended up as the program director. Yeah so the Center for a New Culture is an organization that's focused on working for a world that works for everyone. And the focus of the organization, what it does extremely well, is relationship, freedom, and communication skills, and cultivating intimacy, and within a field of love, tackling difficult topics, tackling conflict and differences. And so I got involved because I attended New Culture Summer Camp East in um, 2015, and it completely transformed my life in a good way. Mm -hmm. And I had to go back. It transformed my life again in a huge way in 2016. Um, I had this experience of swimming in abundant, infinite love that was also Mm. surging from my chest and was collecting from all the humans in the community of like um, 90 people. Wow. And yeah, so it was impactful. And that's basically why I began to organize events and my role as program director, it sort of just fell in my lap because I was showing up as some transitions were happening, as some people were stepping back. So I showed up, and uh, Michael Arias was like, hey, do you want to make this event happen? And I was like, it was uh, fall camp, new culture fall camp. Mm-hmm. And I was like, um, yeah. <laughs> I've never made an event happen before, but yeah. And so it was a crash course. It was amazing. It changed lives. 
actually think that it was um called fall into poly uh-huh. uh mm-hmm. fall into polyamory and then i just um sort of organically expanded my reach to all eight events that the organization has hosted they've been in person retreats from anywhere uh 4 to 10 days and so that's how I became the program director. Wonderful. That's so cool. Thank you for that story. Um, what do you think about the offerings that New Culture had that transformed you so much? Can you give us a sense of why it was so powerful for you? Yeah, so I grew up in the D.C. suburbs, Washington, D.C., and I my entire life have been very sensitive to culture. That is Mm -hmm. the norms and mindsets of people around me. And I've been very sensitive to people's expectations and the behaviors that were seen as desirable or harmonious, um, worth love. So, what I did for decades was just unquestioningly fit within those boxes. I adopted the mindsets that I was given, Mm -hmm. like um, that love is scarce and that touch is and should be scarce and Mm -hmm. that emotions are a liability. They're dangerous. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that appearances are the most important thing, especially Mm, for bodies seen as women, Mm -hmm. as as the bodies of women. And so the transformational seed was that transition. It was my first window into, wow, Life doesn't have to be what I've always known it to be. And I was already counterculture. I had dabbled in ecstatic dance and five rhythms and um, meditation. I, I was into rave culture. And I showed up at New Culture. And I just remember being stunned because I kept going to workshops and everything that the person said was completely new and felt deeply true in my body. Mm-hmm. And I was like, mm-hmm. yes, 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 yes. I've never heard anyone say that before, but yes. So, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it was my first well, window into a whole new world. Right. Yeah, I love how you listen to your body instead of just listening to the messages that the, that the greater culture was just force-feeding you. And you started to tune into what felt true for you and what you were like, you know, you found that hell yes, just by the way you say it, I can hear it. It's, it's coming from like a deep place in your body as opposed to just like, oh, this is what I'm expected to do. It, that kind of comes more from like a shut-down, contracted fear place that, you know, you want to be accepted by family and community, so you do what you're supposed to do, as opposed to, ah, oh, I'm relaxing because I'm doing what I want to do, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. That's really cool. Um, so you, um, you gave me permission to talk about labels, and so yeah. um, maybe you can share what labels fit best for you at this time and what they mean to you, labels around gender and relationships and sexuality. Yeah, so to me, labels are never the whole story. They're always just the best box, (laughs) Mm -hmm. the best reduction. But I Mm -hmm. do try, the kind of labels I love are the ones that give me freedom. Mm Mm-hmm. And, yeah, feel more true. So I identify as gendered. What'd you say? Go ahead. No, go ahead. Okay. I identify as genderqueer. That is uh, outside of the 
gender binary. Mm -hmm. And I and gender binary being man, woman, uh, through uh, mostly a white colonial lens. Mm -hmm. And I identify as omnisexual and asexual. And a uh, little definition, omnisexual, I had to, the way I found this was through this like long list of different labels. I was like, okay, that one. So omnisexual <laughs> is basically like pansexual, but with preferences. So pansexual, mm -hmm. the way many people use it is gender, not a factor. I like mm -hmm. all genders. Mm -hmm. or no genders, just gender, whatever. Whereas omnisexual um, is I can be and am attracted to people of any or all genders, and I have preferences. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes me think of the word omnivore, where we eat meat and vegetables. <laughs> so, um, yeah. But, you know, you can decide at any time if you want to have a vegetarian dish because you're going out with a bunch of vegetarian friends or um, go to a barbecue and have a steak. <laughs> totally. Yeah. And then um, my last thing, asexual that I mentioned, that means that as opposed so allosexual is uh, one who has regular emergent desire for sexual connection with another human. Uh, what is the word allo? Yeah, allosexual. A-L-L-O sexual. Allo, okay. And then uh, in sort of opposition to that is asexual. It's not that. It's just this broad spectrum. I mean, everyone's sexuality, every human, every being's sexuality is different. But asexual spectrum is people who, in one way or another, don't have a regular, emergent, needful desire for sex, mm -hmm. whatever that means. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't mean that they never want to have sex. It just means that they don't have, you said a regular, what was the other word? They don't have a regular what? I said needful, and what I mean by that is it's needful. not a need. Yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. Irregular needful desire for sex. Yeah, I like that. I've been feeling asexual after menopause. So, you know, mm -hmm. if it's the right person or the right situation, then, yeah, it totally kickstarts my drive. But if there's nothing around, I'm totally fine without sex now, and that never used to be the case before when I was younger. So I've become uh -huh. asexual as I've gotten older. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. And I think it, it, also, it, also, it also depends on, like, where I am in my relationship status. Like, if I've had a hard breakup and I kind of need a little recovery time afterwards, I just would like a break from sex, and I can do that now. I can choose to do that. I'm not, like, feeling as horny all the time in between relationships, you know. So it's kind of actually mm -hmm. freeing. Yeah. I, I like how you said that the labels help you feel freer. So that that's really cool. Totally. That's what I want. That's It's like my aim, there's some part of me that's very literal. So part of it is trying to use the words that seem the most true. And another mm -hmm. part of it is trying to convey to others as much as possible who I am, that truth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, if we can talk a little bit about, I know you can't be the one representative of your entire generation and I can't be the one representative of mine, but um, just for who we are, people of my generation, I'm 60, and, um, and I've been, you know, in this culture of polyamory and consensual non-monogamy and, like, really learning about, the movement, really, I would call it like this complete awakening of younger generations to the diversity of genders and the freedom to explore who they really are and not only have two choices. And I think it's so awesome. 
and also, you know, all of this stuff around, but like you, you called it the, the white male colonial lens and, you know, really just looking at all that stuff about how the things we took for granted and how we can look at things in a different way. Um, but so many people of my generation just get so agitated with this stuff. It's really difficult yeah. for them to even understand why somebody would care about this, you know. So how mm. do you respond when you talk to an older person who, who just gets, I mean, I don't know if this is the right question to ask, but just I just wanted to talk about that, how there's there's this friction um, in the different generations. Because I see it, like when I bring it up. For example, I go to a 12-step program, and they just change the literature from, you know, this program is a fellowship of men and women who come together to recover from their addiction. So they just changed the wording and they've they never change any literature they have like the old school literature that was written in the 1930s but they made this one change recently that we are a fellowship of people who come together to support each other in recovery right and so I just thought mm-hmm. it was so awesome and people that are just like rolling like older people you know are like rolling their eyes about that so um mm-hmm. So I don't know, just speak to that. Speak to that, how there's such a shift happening in your generation, people in your similar age group, a little older and younger, that are really exploring the genders and why that's so meaningful for you. So it's different for everyone. And for me... So, I was socialized as a girl, and like I said before, I tried very hard to fit into the boxes that I was given, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and one illustrative example is that I was a swing dancer for, Mm -hmm. I mean, a good two years, maybe two and a half. And when I walked in, they just had girls on one side and boys on the other. And there was no label. I looked and I was like, okay, these people seem like they have my part. So I'm going to go over there. And... Mm -hmm. What that ended up was me trying to stuff myself into this box that just didn't work. So that's mm-hmm. what swing dancing was for me for those two years. It was doing the box right. And mm-hmm. I was at Lindy Focus, um, just big, this, this big event on the East Coast uh, for swing dancers. And I remember feeling like I'm done. I cannot mm-hmm. do this. And I would see like all these people around like like laughing, enjoying themselves. And I was just stone faced. It was this process of <sighs> self subjugating myself. It was it was crushing. Mm-hmm. And I look back and I wish that I either myself that it had turned out that I had learned for those two years to lead, I think that mm-hmm. I would still be a swing dancer. I don't really mm-hmm. know. Who knows? But um, the boxes just really don't fit me. There's a mm-hmm. way that, I am different every moment, every day, and mm-hmm. the meanness, I've done a lot of meditation and exploring what existence is for me, and I look inside, and the only gender I can find is my trauma and depression. It's mm-hmm. stuff other people have done to me, mm-hmm. and the the way I make sense of it is you did that because of the way you thought you could treat 
a woman in that moment. Mm-hmm. And so the importance to me is being true to the, the meanness that I can find is consciousness. It's pure consciousness. And there's not really, there's not, there's nothing of me that is gendered. Mm -hmm. Right. I love that. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that. And then now that you identify as genderqueer, how does your queerness impact your relationship journey? Yeah, so I, um, <laughs> I'm i in relationship. I have a partner who's a trans woman. And so in that way, um, my intimates are pretty privy, <laughs> pretty privy to <laughs> gender as a social construct. And the inadequacy of labels and the the oppression of the separation that results from and the violence that results from the big labels, the the, the big groupings that are um, social, like that are culturally relevant, like um, Mm -hmm. in the rigid way, man, woman, um, black, white. Um, the way that these these are used to create an other, like a um, a subject and an object, and mm-hmm. so we're we're all very intellectual and heady, but also embodied and spiritual, and so in that way, I think that that's who I am. I attract or I'm attracted to are the people who mm-hmm. ha- have examined the stories that they've been given. And to some degree that is what you find just in general in polyamory and ethical non-monogamy, but it's also true with queer folks. And um, one big way, part of my queerness is my asexuality um, I'm, I'm gray sexual, meaning I don't want sex unless I do. And it's more often that <laughs> I don't. It's just, I, especially as I get in tune with my body and I love whatever I feel and I feel more aliveness in general, I, I notice things like, oh, it, where it comes up is I want sex if I feel infatuated. And if I um, feel like big love and trust. Mm-hmm. But one way that shows up is infatuation does not last forever for me. Right. Uh, and so, for example, with my current partner, she and I point. We haven't, we could still have sex, but we haven't had sex in in weeks. And so the way it impacts it is since I don't have a need for sex, I don't seek it out as often. And it's not as, it's not a need, like, that I can meet for myself in relationship and I can mm-hmm. joyfully share pleasure and connection with my partners um, or humans. And my partner definitely has a need for sex. And so she goes mm-hmm. outside of the relationship because I definitely don't want it as often as she does mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. sexual connection. Mm -hmm. And so, and what's interesting too, though, is I still got 
indoctrinated with the mononormative stories, the cishet mononormative mm-hmm. stories that are like PI, penis and vagina, PIV sex is the end all be all and right. uh, heterosexual relationship is the end all be all and you cannot meet any needs outside of those that context. Uh, and so that's part of my work is mm-hmm. chipping away over time at that programming, the internal voices right. that say, she's not having sex with you, so she doesn't love you. And being like, mm-hmm. actually, society was wrong about our gender. Do you think maybe society was wrong that there can only be one love? And so just right. convincing the child parts of what mm-hmm. the other parts of me already know uh, is a mm-hmm. journey. <laughs> Thank you for that. Thank you for vulnerably sharing that. I really appreciate it. And, you know, I relate to that. Um, I had a partner for seven years and we decided, I mean, he's still my partner, but um, about four years ago we decided to take sex off the table for us. Mm-hmm. because everything else was great around our relationship and that was the only thing that wasn't working. And so, you know, he mentioned to somebody that, that he and I weren't being sexual anymore. And so then, of course, the gossip spread and somebody goes, oh, I'm so sorry to hear about you guys breaking up. And I was like, we didn't break up. <laughs> we're just not rubbing genitals wow. together right now. You know, <laughs> We're just not like pulling yeah. our pants down and rubbing genitals. Like other than that, everything's the same, you know. Like, we never lived together anyway, and we still talk on the phone all the time and do all these things together and love each other as much, if not more, than ever because now we don't have that conflict anymore, you know. And so Mm -hmm. that's what I love about polyamory is that we don't have to ever break up with anybody. This is what I tell my clients. If you're speaking your truth and you're able to be a safe person for your partner to you without reacting and flipping out and, making it about you, but you can just really hear their truth, even if it's painful to hear. You're making it safe for them mm-hmm. to share their truth. So you're speaking your truth, they're speaking their truth, and you're holding your boundaries. That's sometimes the hard part. Is like if your partner says, well, I want to be able to see whoever I want. I don't want to have to tell you. And if that's against your boundaries, then you got to say, well, that doesn't work for me. We need to morph our relationship into something different. I need to look for a primary partner elsewhere. We can be friends with benefits or we can be non-sexual cuddle buddies or whatever. But if you can speak your truth and hold your boundaries, then you can morph your relationship into something different while still keeping the love there. But I think when we ignore our boundaries for a long period of time, that's when we have to break up because we feel so hurt around how we've given too much, right? Mm. Yeah, this brings up the thought. So for me, throughout my relationship history, I have had a lot of sex I did not want. Precisely Mm -hmm. because, one, I used to be um, dissociated. I've complex PTSD so that was my coping mechanism so I mm-hmm. for when I was uh, younger I didn't feel and another aspect was that strong story that the key part or a key part of relationship of getting love and giving love is PIV, penis and vagina sex, intercourse. And that's the way I make sure this person will be there for me, will will meet my needs, will love me, that any any good relationship has that specific kind of sex. So I would have that specific kind of sex even when I didn't want to. Mm -hmm. Right. How many people have done that, boy, especially people in, in, you know, women's bodies have given sex for other reasons other than just because they felt like they wanted to share that pleasure. You know, I mean, it's really epidemic. 
Um, but before we continue, I just want to say, um, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Leading Edge Love Radio, and this is your host, Sumati Sparks, the open relationship coach at sumatisparks.com. And I'm speaking with Indigo Dawn, is a transformational coach, educator, and touch therapist from the East Coast. And if you'd like to ask Indigo any questions, feel free to call in. You won't interrupt us. You'll just be put on hold and we'll answer your call at the right time. The call-in number is 657-383-1132. Again, that's 657-383-1132. So, um, Indigo, you were talking about your partner um, wanting more sex more frequently than you want it, and so they go outside the relationship for that. So can you share with us, like, what challenges you have around that arrangement or what your current edges are around polyamory. Yeah. So one up, so one opportunity just while it's on mind and then I'll go into um, my edges. One opportunity that I am grateful for is, the opportunity to dismantle that um, socialization, the socialization as a girl, as a woman, of Mm -hmm. that my primary value is sexual. Mm -hmm. And so one of, one of my edges in polyamory in in non-monogamous relationship is I am dismantling or replacing those messages and just the message that, that I got in childhood that I am not worth love. There was this mm-hmm. way, my story about it, all I have of the past are my feelings and my stories and the mm-hmm. memories, the, the somatic memories. And so the, the edge I'm writing is <sighs> grounding in the safety and the depth of love that I truly have, the abundance and the power and the essential goodness. And um teaching me that I will always be there for me, no matter what I feel, no matter how the relationships I'm in flow, ebb and flow. And so that's one, one edge that's internal, like my personal work is reparenting myself. Mm -hmm. And that exact edge is, actually learning to intentionally dissociate and when that's the right thing. There was a way my previous stage was feel everything all the time. And Mm -hmm. I saw dissociation as an obstacle. And now I'm coming into a phase where I want to choose how much I feel right before bedtime. There's a way that I mm-hmm. want to be able to say, hello, feelings, hello, emotional flashback. I love you, and it's bedtime. And mm-hmm. so I'm going to put you away because we need mm-hmm. to sleep, and I will love you, and you can tell me everything, and I will feel you tomorrow. <laughs> That's great. So you said you meditate and you experience yourself as consciousness Um, how do you I was just listening to this do you know the teacher Michael Singer who wrote The Untethered Soul Mm -hmm. 
You, you know this teacher? Yeah, I haven't read it, but I know of him. Uh-huh. So he was just talking about, um, you know, I mean, his basic teaching is about, like, strengthening the witness that can sit back and observe all the thoughts and all the feelings and all the chaos that goes on in our mind and not become that. You know, it's a very Buddhist kind of concept, like, you know, notice the thoughts, don't become the thoughts. So since you do a lot of meditation, how do you dance with your emotional work of like really letting yourself feel things at the right time and also remembering that at your core you are pure consciousness? How how do you dance with all of that together? I'm just curious. Yeah, there's a way I have been strengthening this muscle of being grounded in well-being no matter what Mm -hmm. I feel and no matter Mm. what happens. And there's a way I'm, I'm curating, I'm creating this new part of me that there's two, there's different ones. There's this discrete part that is my internal loving parent. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I haven't created an as concrete of a way, my inner partner, the the part of me that loves me sexually, like every, like run intimacy with me in whatever way, but it's a part of me. So that part, that part is, I've, I've played with it less. But the reparenting, the all-loving, very patient, compassionate um, self that's, that's grounded in this other part that is essence, that is universal goodness. And so there's, those are two places I can access, and each of them create this larger context, this ocean, this room. Sometimes it feels like I'm giving myself a session, and I have my, my child in an embrace of mm-hmm. universal goodness, of my parent, inner parent love. And... So more and more I've been cultivating this ability to, no matter how tired I am, no matter how triggered I am, no matter what else is happening, to tap into the flow of life, that the universal energy that I experience as, yeah, bigger than me. Right. And the love, the love energy. Cool. Well, yeah, that's what I love about Michael Singer's work, too, is he always says, you know, when you've done the work on yourself, you know, he totally includes that we are always working on ourselves, that we're always learning to parent ourselves better, that we're always looking at our shadows, that we're always looking at um, what what is our jealousy pointing to? Like what core wound have we not noticed, you know? there's always that work of owning. And that's one of the things I tell my clients when they embark upon ethical non-monogamy is give up blaming. No more blaming allowed. <laughs> All of your mm-hmm. feelings are your own. And when you have a feeling, let's look at what's going on in you. It's not because your partner mm-hmm. did something or didn't do some culture, you know. <laughs> so in the conscious relationship world, it's never the other person's fault that you feel a certain way. So all of that work is part of our spiritual evolution. They're not two different things. That's how I think of it. Yeah. I, an anecdote from my life is earlier, a couple of years ago, when I did not feel as deeply, I just knew envy. And it was this pinched, like, icky feeling and now whoa baby do I know 
it is beneath that pinched feeling is this deep mm-hmm. well of abandonment because it links into yeah. my, my CPTSD right. and the actual feelings of abandonment from my childhood. So I have found this deep uh, treasure trove of healing and learning and growth from doing that that exact thing of asking, okay, well, what is beneath this feeling and mm-hmm. how can I be with it in a good way, a, mm-hmm. totally without making the other person wrong or before asking for anything to be different, before making requests or God forbid demands, looking inside and mm-hmm. being with me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. And you said that you wanted to share about how you transmute conflicts and triggers to create even deeper healing and intimacy in relationships. So I get from that that you have a method where you actually turn conflicts and triggers into a, a path to even deeper intimacy. So can you share with us some of those thoughts? Yeah, so my method is to orient towards deep self-connection and Mm -hmm. self-awareness and to view relationship as a vehicle for healing. Mm -hmm. And of course, it's going to, it's relationships are many things. To many people and but for me the key is to view relationship and it's not only an opportunity for me to heal but for my partner to heal so mm-hmm. I asked myself the question of in in this situation how can I be with myself in a way that is most healing? And how can I be with my partner in a way that is most healing? And what that often looks like is um, if, for example, I have a trigger, I have a reaction, then those two questions are in mind. So I might go inward and fully Mm -hmm. feel my feelings and let them move through and then come back to my partner afterwards. Or Mm -hmm. this happened recently, actually, we were both in a flashback and it doesn't always turn out this way, but this last time I noticed, that was what was happening. And so I entered this he- this space of almost practitioner for mm. my partner in which I was focused on her, on her child self and her flashback, her trigger in a way that she just like started crying. She, she was angry. She was expressing anger and she started crying and she melted into my arms. And so Mm. I see, especially like underneath anger, there is usually hurt. Mm -hmm, Right. And there's needs beneath that hurt. There are unmet childhood needs. There are current needs that are unmet. There's ways one feels safe or doesn't feel safe. But anger is is a mode of protecting something that needs protecting usually something very valuable. And if it's a childhood anger, it's usually that that same thing is probably not threatened in the same exact way in the present moment. Mm-hmm. But it still harkens back to a need, um, a wound that we can fill, that we can heal in present day if, we're both on, if both people or 
all the people involved are on board with that. If they have that mm-hmm. knowledge or that worldview that our emotions are linked deeply to our needs and our childhoods. And mm-hmm. so in that way, when a big, intense emotion comes, it's an opportunity to learn about our own needs, about our own wounds, and heal those, and meet those, and also about our partners. Like, oh, wow, like, I had no idea that you had this deep need. And for me, when I learned that, I learned, of course, I can't meet it every day, every second of every day, but when it's joyful, when it's in my capacity, that's what I want to do. Like, what mm-hmm. greater joy than to be a source of deep healing and and fulfillment for my partners? Beautiful. Well, what I noticed was so profound about your method is the, the deep um, self, what did you say, self, self-connection, that you're starting yeah. with deep self-connection. Instead of so many of us, when we're upset, when we're triggered, we go right to our partner and we're trying to get this unmet need met before we've even become clear on what it even is ourselves. We just know there's something. And this is like the infantile part of us, you know, we're triggered yeah. and we're three years old and we're just like, I don't know what I need, mommy, but just give it to me. You know, like, because your mommy <laughs> does try to guess what you need then, you know, like your mommy is tuned into you and tries to give you what you need if they're a good mommy, if they're a good enough mommy. But um, as an adult, we have to take a time out. Like I teach a lot of my clients to like do the time out. It's a very sacred, if one person calls for a time out or even just makes the time out signal with the T with their hands, that that has to be held as sacred and that they have to not speak because anything said after that will just have to be cleaned up later. (laughs) So just yeah. stop talking, go go separate ways, go off in your room, go for a bike ride, a motorcycle ride, whatever you need to do to, like, reset your nervous system, call a friend, you know, go to a support group, whatever, and then tune in to, like, okay, what happened to me? Why did I get triggered? What was going on for me? What's, what's the feeling and what's the need underneath it? And then when my nervous system is calm again, I can come back and say, here's what I learned about myself. Here's the need. And it's so much easier to get that need met when you're coming from that resourced place of the self-discovery than when you're in the triggered mode and you can't think, you can't, you know, even figure out how to communicate it to your partner. So it's a really important uh, relationship skill there that I wish they would have taught us that in grade school. <laughs> totally. And this framework around emotional reactions that Mm -hmm. is when I have a really big reaction in the present, it most often links directly back to a moment in my past. Exactly. Uh, A pain point. Often a moment of trauma. something about relationships that relationships, you know, love relationships just link right back to those um, key, like, formative experiences in the first maybe seven or eight years of our life. It's just uncanny how that happens every time. Um, But before we run out of time, I want to change the subject here. I could geek out on you all day about this, but I want to... um, (laughs) I want to hear, because I love community so much, and you're in this community that you're helping to build and the program director for. So... um, Maybe you could share a little bit about what you're learning about community building um, in the last, you know, five or ten minutes that we have here. Um, what do we have? We have about six or seven minutes, actually, for it. Um, share a little bit about um, what you're learning about community building. Um, I'm sure you've had a very interesting year and a half around community and what your edges mm-hmm. are around that right now. Yeah, so... Something that I'm attuning to is this recent realization that 
whatever space I am creating in community is one in which I want to be actively dismantling systemic oppression. Mm -hmm. And that's something I already do for myself, doing my own personal anti-racism work and dismantling um, the white supremacy in me and in my world. And so I'm coming into this knowing that if I am not actively dismantling it in my community space, then it is simply existing. Mm-hmm. And so that's my edge is stepping into this question of, okay, well, how can I best dismantle white supremacy in the spaces I move through and I create mm-hmm. in? And, and what was so the you like the past year and a half? This past year and a half, it's been all online, and mm-hmm. we had a new culture infusion, which was super sweet, and I saw some of these, um, we had a, a presenter talking about race, and we also just uh, connected virtually, and it was actually super satisfying. I was really surprised. I stayed up late past my bedtime so often, <laughs> just like I do at in-person retreats, because it was just so fun. And cool. yeah, it was lovely. And then you designed the consent program for for that um, for the festival. Yeah. So for. That's also something that's central to my community building work and also just my life, all of my, all the stuff I do. This way I'm just an activist in every way. Mm -hmm. I'm a change maker. Mm -hmm. But my my consent work I do with the Interfusion Festival um, that has like 1,500 people. I think they're going to have more this upcoming year, but I also do it just in New Culture East community. And that work, the edge has been, (sighs) similarly, it's uprooting patriarchal mindset. And there's always been in new culture, this beautiful holding of each individual, even in a conflict, even in a boundary crossing Mm -hmm. incident as Mm -hmm. human. And I think that's Mm -hmm. so needed. Mm -hmm. And the edge has been, okay, well, at what point is the possibility of harm too much? And there's a question, it's like, if we allow people to remain in community who re- repeatedly cross boundaries, then we are functionally excluding people with past trauma or the people mm-hmm. who have had their boundaries crossed by this person. And so the, the edge I'm playing is who do I want to exclude and being very explicit about that, knowing that no matter what I do, even if I hang a big welcome sign on the door, I will not be 100% inclusive. That's the question Mm -hmm. I'm playing with is, and the answer is the people that harm people. The answer is, Mm if I have the choice between the archetypal oppressor and the archetypal victim, then, and all else is equal, then I want to have the archetypal victim to reverse the, the hundreds of years of 
the opposite. Right. And if there, if somebody has perpetrated violence of some sort on another, the difference is, are they willing to be humble enough to go through a transformational justice process yeah. as opposed to digging their heels in and denying it or whatever. And that's when they're going to need to be excluded in some way because they don't have the willingness to listen to how they've harmed other people and to listen for the, um, the biases that are so embedded in their mind that they're, you know, they're pushing against people telling them, no, you've got to look at your own internalized oppression and they're not willing to do that work. So that if the willingness isn't, isn't there, that's when you just simply have to exclude people. Definitely. Yeah. Well, um, Indigo, we're out of time and this has just flown by because you're so much fun to talk to and I love the type <laughs> of thinker you are. It's been so great. Um, but I want to give you time to tell our listeners how they can get more of you. And if you're offering anything to our listeners, go ahead and take it away. Yeah. So on Facebook, uh, Twitter, Instagram, my handle is the at sign. And then M as in mom, X as in xylophone. So mix dot indigo, like the color. Dawn, D-A-W-N, like the time of day. Mm-hmm. And you can also find more of me on my website. It's mix, M-X, indigo, dawn, dot square, dot site. And on there, there are some pictures. And you can also book with me. Um, you can book a free 20-minute consultation for my coaching who I love to work with are people who are change makers just leaders Mm -hmm. in creating the new world the world that you most yearn for and Mm -hmm. helping you do that in a way that you feel abundant and um crawl out of any dissatisfaction or discouragement that's so normal. Mm-hmm. And so for listeners, if you want to go ahead and book a one-hour session, coaching session, to be virtual on Zoom with me, then if you do that by the 20th, at 10 p.m. Eastern, then you'll get $50 off of a one-hour coaching session. So it's usually $150, and it'll go down to $100. And you can book that on my website, and you can also go for that um, one hour. You can go to Calendly dot com slash indigo dawn perfect well that's very generous of you thank you so much i want to thank you for being on the show with me it was a delight getting to know you indigo and i wish you the best of luck with all of your endeavors thank you it's a lot of fun for me too okay great we'll talk to you soon bye 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 Okay, so next week on Leading Edge Love Radio, uh, we will be speaking with, I don't know how to pronounce her name, Anaya, I think it's Anaya Sandara, and she is an embodiment mentor, and she's also here on Maui with me, and so I'm looking forward to hearing about her unique take on her embodiment work. She's a beautiful, beautiful woman. So join us at 6 p.m. Pacific time on Leading Edge Love Radio on blogtalkradio.com and we look forward to seeing you then. Good night, everyone.
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.